Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Community Church. If this is your first time here, we give, uh, extend to you a very special welcome and we're glad that you are ringing in the new year with us. And since it's new year, of course, we have to talk about priorities and starting over where we messed up last year. It's, it's a time when we sort of establish priorities in our lives. I mean, you look at your life and you say, what are the deficiencies in my life? And some of you have already made resolutions about better diet, exercise, spiritual discipline, watching more sports, important things. You know, you've already made, and you've, some of you have already broken those commitments, so I, I want to identify with you. I have resolved that I'm going to preach 15-minute sermons this year, and I'm going to break it this morning, so you will not be alone. Uh, you probably already recognize this. Well, you knew this a long time ago. We, we get this sense at, at, at the first of the year that anything is possible. But decisions, and we've made some big decisions, but decisions don't change our lives. They only change our direction. Discipline changes one's life. Whether or not you make the choice today to follow through with what you have resolved earlier in life, that's what's going to make, that's what's going to change your life day in and day out. Uh, And so if you have already fallen off the wagon, so to speak, from your commitments for the new year, jump back on, give it a go, give it another go. If we're going to talk about priorities for believers, at the absolute top of the list has to be love. Love doesn't look like what a lot of people think it looks like, but it is no doubt at the very top of the list. Our text today is Mark 12, and we're studying through the book of Mark, and that means we've jumped seven chapters, and and actually haven't really jumped at all. We're using this text as a base. This is going to be a message that you very, unlike which you very seldom hear from this pulpit. It's very topical in nature. It's not that we're going to read the text and depart therefrom, but it's going to be close, really close. I never preach like that. We're tied to the word when we get up here and don't allow the word to just say, or don't make it so that the word backs up a particular point that we have. But, but this topic is so broad. It's so pervasive in scripture and, and, and it's supposed to be that way in our lives. And this text Let's just call it a broad foundation. It's a very solid foundation. Just because it's broad doesn't mean that it, it's thin in places. It's very broad and it's very deep as well. It's a great text. And in fact, people call this passage the great commandment. When we come to our study of this particular text in the, in the Gospel of Mark, I'll treat it much differently than today. But the truth found here hopefully is going to motivate all of us to make love a priority in 2014. Our text is Mark 12, verses 28 to 34. So if you would please stand as we read God's word together. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. 
And seeing that he answered them well, he being Jesus, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. I'm sure that meant a lot to Jesus. <laughs> uh, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Let's pray. Father, um, when we think about love, we recognize that we don't know anything about it. We see a, an amazing love that you have for us. And when we consider the love that you had in sending your son Jesus, when we consider his love in going to the cross, when we consider the love of the Spirit who is faithful to remind us of our hope in Jesus and our heart's desire to love like that. And I pray that you would cause us to open ourselves to your love, that your love may flow through us and that we would love you in return and that we would love others, not in the sentimental sappy way that so many people think of, although there is great beauty in love and often a great sense of fulfillment and feeling in love. But Lord, at its base, at its foundation, it is wrapped up in Jesus' sacrifice for us. We thank you for that and pray that you meet with us and change us this day in Jesus' name. Amen. How would you define love? I mean, if you said love is, how would you define it? It's not as easy as you think. I mean, when you look it up in the dictionary, you find a lot of words about feelings. And, I mean, everyone knows what it feels like. To be in love in the way that we use that term. When you see him or her for the first time. You say and do some really silly things. You know because you're feeling it's just a wonderful feeling. But if you've been in love long enough. You recognize that feelings can't be the foundation for love. Um, Jesus commands us to love our enemies. I doubt we're going to have the same kinds of warm fuzzies for them as we do, you know, our, our families and our relatives and our spouse, our boyfriend, girlfriend. This will not surprise you since we are <clears throat> at church, but our focus this morning is going to be on biblical love. What is biblical love? Most of the times we infer 
a definition of biblical love based on an action or a motive associated with love. Such as when Jesus told his commands, his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So love, you would almost infer, is an action. When you look in the Greek, that may be more of a sense of, if you love me, you will treasure my word. Um, No doubt, though, biblical love for Jesus is going to produce a life that lives according to Jesus' teaching. 1 Corinthians 13 is a good description of what love for others looks like. It describes such characteristics as patience and kindness, forgiveness, etc. Love is this, love is that. The passages that I have referred to would, would seem to indicate and would cause us to conclude that love is action. And in some way, we understand James, the writer of the book of James, when he says, look, you say that you have faith. How about a little bit of works to indicate that your faith is real? Show me some good works to in, to, to, so that we can know for, for sure that your good works are real. We feel the same way when somebody says, I love you, and then acts in ways that are totally inconsistent with love. You know, we say things like, I hear what you're saying, but your actions are speaking so loudly that they drown out your words. Show me that you love me. And then I'll believe it. But our text indicates that there is a visceral or an emotional component to love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That can't be a passionless love. He's saying that God needs to be first in our thoughts and our emotions and our actions. And we've all been smitten, as we would say in America, or besotted, as they would say in Down Under. We've all been smitten or besotted with someone. And we realize how this person becomes first, second, and third in our, our hearts and minds. Then Jesus says to love your neighbor... As you love yourself. And in the parable of the Good Samaritan. He tells us that our neighbor might not be one for whom we would have natural affinity. Now let me ask you this. If you could treat yourself any way that you wanted to. How would you treat yourself? I mean would you mock yourself? Abuse your trust? Start nasty rumors about yourself? Not likely. You you may be at a place where, you know, you got some pretty serious negative self-talk going on. I mean, as much as I, when, when I say to myself, I'm a genius. As much as I would like to think that I am, that's not what I mean when I say that to myself, you know. So we may have some negative self-talk going on, but for the most part, we treat ourselves pretty well. Treat others the way that you would treat yourself and you will most likely fulfill Jesus' command to love. It's difficult, if not impossible, to love others in a 
biblical manner without loving God. So to say, I just want to love other people like Jesus loved them. That's, a, that's noble. But if we don't love God, then we have no idea how to love as Jesus loved. So the first commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love others as you love yourself. Having acknowledged the fact that, that we have to love God before we love others. Let's, let's make an attempt at a biblical uh, definition or a definition for biblical love. Here We'll go with this one if this works okay for you. Biblical love is a commitment to the betterment of of another person. Now, now we're talking about love, so don't be jealous that I've used betterment in a sentence and you just haven't been able to do that, although you've wanted to. A commitment to the betterment of another person. Isn't it, in fact, true that one of the best ways to gauge a relationship is if this person, whether a relationship, whether you should continue to pursue a relationship, is whether or not this person makes you a better person or not. That's a good thing. That's what I want to tell my kids. That's what I want to tell my grandchildren. I want to say, when they say, I'm in love, you know, what do you think? I'm going to say, well, let me ask you, does this person make you a better person or not? Because of your interaction with them. It's far from a complete definition, but hopefully it works. Uh, so before we think about what this means, I want us to first think about some attitudes that keep us from loving God and others as we should. So some barriers to love. The first one is this, loving the wrong things. Love is a matter of choice. In fact, our lives are filled with one choice after another. We love God or we love the world and we love ourselves. We worship God or we worship others or things that become idols. 1 John 2, 5 or 15 to 17 states our choices very clearly. What a great way to start this year. Put these verses in your, your mind and ask the Lord to help you understand and live by these verses. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Pretty straightforward choice, isn't it? Love the world or love God. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. When do you feel the most alive? When you're with certain people or when you are at a particular event or when everything is just going... Almost certainly, whenever you feel the most alive, that's passing away. If your joy is not First and foremost, in God, if it's in something you can see, if it's in something tangible, even if it's something you can't see, it's tangible though, like, like the love of my family, almost everything is passing away. And God offers us a choice, love the world 
or love me? Love the world or love God? When you look at a, 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 this text a little closer, the reason that we love the world is that we love our, ourself. Look, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Another way of saying that might be me, 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 or mine, mine, mine. Look, don't you, I love good commercials, and some of them you just like, that's so tired, this, this formula's tired, you know, come on, can't you come up with something new? But the one I love, the car that's, it's not an either or, it's both and, you know, it's, that would be like being large or in charge, and that little guy's on the table saying, there are three ways to do this, my way, my way, my way. You know, and the rest of big people are just looking at him, and much as you are looking at me at the moment. And, uh, uh, and it's like, that's kind of, I, that's what I, the sense I get about this verse, this text. This, it's all about me. And it's going to be done my way. If you've been reading the Bible, if you've begun reading Scripture anew this year, very quickly you encountered Cain and Abel. And you may recall that because of Cain's attitude, the Lord told him, sin is crouching at the door. You must rule over it. Its desire is for you. It wants to master you, but you must rule over it. If 2014 is going to be a year of love for you, then you're going to have to do something about temptation. To sin. Do not presume upon God's grace. If Jesus has changed your life, then make this a year when you put his desires in front of your desires. And it's a great time of year because we, re- we recognize that the gospel is a cycle. It's not this continuum. And even if we've fallen, he redeems and he restores and, and, he, and he points us back in the direction that we need to go. But we have to say, this year needs to be His year, not mine. Scripture is constantly putting choices in front of us. You cannot love God and money. You cannot worship God and worship people or activities or possessions which end up becoming idols. You cannot live a life of leisure And be my disciple. You cannot save your life without ultimately losing it. And ultimately we choose sin. Or we choose God. Your sin, the sin that you struggle with. And look, I'm going to guess that everybody in here can identify a particular sin. It just has a hold on you. It may be repugnant to you, but you need to learn to rule over it. You may be a passionate person struggling with lust or materialism, or you may be in control of your passions, but consequently, consequently you may struggle with pride and self-righteousness. I thank thee, Lord, that I don't struggle as these other people struggle. 
no matter how or where your life this life is placed your desires are competing with your love for god and if your love for god is limited your love for others is going to be limited as well another barrier that prevents biblical love is a self protection mindset first corinthians 13 doesn't describe that it's it's sort of an antidote for it you ever love someone who hurt you or betrayed you if you've ever loved deeply then either you have been hurt deeply or you're very young and you've lived a charmed life to this point when you're hurt the tendency often is to say gosh you know, that hurt me, but I, I see so much good was accomplished. I think I'll do that again and again and again. Mm, that's not the case, is it? When we're hurt, what do we do? We start building walls to protect ourselves. But here's the problem. It is impossible to truly love someone without the risk of being hurt. It is impossible to love someone unless you take the risk that you will be hurt. I mean, when, when we've been hurt badly enough, the temptation is to say, I can't go through that again. I cannot endure that heartbreak. I'm just not going to put myself out there to be abused by others. Now, we may say that we'll never love again, but when we say such a thing, there is a serious love affair actually going on with ourselves. Either we love God or we love ourselves. And if we love God, we're going to be building relationships, reaching out to others. Now look, I recognize that we all know people who seem to consistently put themselves in a place of being hurt. And if you know someone like that in your life, you want to say, don't do that, do not. Don't you see this idiot cares nothing about you. He or she just wants to use you. Don't let yourself be used like that. But that's not the case with most of us. Most of us become wary after we've been hurt and then we start building walls around our hearts to protect ourselves and we don't realize what we don't realize is that we're keeping ourselves from loving loving others when we start building those walls of protection oh no 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 i, I am happy to love i want to serve others i just don't want to take the risk of uh, uh, of being hurt I, I just don't know that you can do that I mean, I don't know that you can protect yourself and truly give to others. Uh, you know what I mean. I'm obviously, I'm not talking on, uh, at the extremes here. At the edges of, uh, of love both ways. But 1 Corinthians 13 describes characteristics of love. And all of them have to do with giving. With being vulnerable. There's not a hint of self-protection in the love that is described in 1 Corinthians 13. Look, there's a difference between boundaries and barriers. Boundaries so desperately need to be placed in many of our lives and on the relationships that we have with others. But don't set up 
barriers in your heart because of what one person or a few people have done to you. And the difference is right there in the heart. I I suppose the biggest danger of a mindset that protects itself is that it can so easily lead to bitterness. If you follow Jesus, then you are called not to cultivate a bitter heart. Bitterness just, bitterness just happens. It's like Larry Osborne says in his, his book, Accidental Pharisees. I, I, I may have shared this recently, but there are enough new ones that I'll share it again because it's, it's pretty funny and it's so accurate. Larry Osborne says nobody sets out to be a Pharisee. You just, you just get there. You know, you just, it just happens. It's kind of like going to Denny's for dinner. Nobody ever plans to go to Denny's. You just end up there, you know. And that's, it's kind of like that with bitterness. It's, you don't plan to be bitter, but you just find yourself there. Self-protection turns to cynicism. I, I know what you're up to. I know your game. I've seen this before. You're looking out for number one. Of course, I'm not, but you are. Cynicism turns to bitterness. How could you have done this? All I did was treat you like a king or a queen. And look at what you've done to me. God's going to deal with you someday. Frankly, we would deal with them, but we find no legitimate way of dealing with them. And so we just have to put it on God. All right, I'll turn you over to God. I mean, we would if we could, and we'd find ways to justify our retaliation. But that is a dangerous, dangerous place to be. When you're bitter towards someone because of the hurt that he or she has caused you, or with God because of certain circumstances in your life, and by the way, please, are you willing to just say, okay, I'm not upset with my circumstances. I'm not upset with my boss who laid me off. I'm not upset with this person or that person. What I'm, who I'm really upset with is God. Because God could have prevented this. And yet here it is in my life. And when we begin to nurse grievances. Our value to the kingdom slowly or rapidly decreases. You can't. Love other people because you're too busy licking your wounds. But it's more than you've been taken out of the game. I mean, bitterness will almost always affect others as well. It's almost like, say, you're the star quarterback and somebody takes a cheap shot at you. And you're taken out of the game. And not only out of this game, but out of the next three or four games as well. And so... The team is preparing for the next game and the the backup comes to you and he says, hey, hey, can you help me? Tell me what the tendencies are of this group over here. And and he says, look, I I can't even think about next game. All I can think about is what happened last week. Johnson, you know, that linebacker that took that cheap shot. And by the way, all linebackers are like that. They hate you and they want to kill you. It just makes me so mad. Nobody cares about quarterbacks. Kind of like that. Hebrews 12, 15 to 17 is a stern warning. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That's the antidote to bitterness, is grace. 
that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Wait a minute. What does my bitterness have to do with hurting others around me? I'm not upset with this one or with that one. What does my bitterness have to do with hurting others? Well, put on the garment of bitterness for a year or ten and and, and see what happens to the people around you. Okay, so what does bitterness have to do with sexual immorality or caring so much about a meal that I will sell my future inheritance just to have a little food in my belly right now? See, that's the problem with bitterness. It'll take you to places you never dreamed that you would go. And once you get there, it's very difficult to get back. Well, that's true, but in these New Testament days, God's grace reigns, and when we repent, we are restored to immediate fellowship. I agree with that. It's interesting that the grace of God is put up front, and he says, don't fail to obtain the grace of God, because if you do, this is what is possible to happen. And would someone please check for me? Is Hebrews in the Old Testament or the New Testament? I'm, I can't recall. And yet, look at this warning. It's a very stern warning against bitterness. It's true. Repentance brings immediate blessing. And, and, and Tim Keller, I read something he said this week. Repentance without joy will lead to despair. You know, if you confess your sin, oh God, I've done it again, I'm so sorry. And then you walk off just angry, you haven't really repented. It's kind of the sorrow of the world that 2 Corinthians talks about, rather than true repentance. True repentance brings joy, but when we allow this bitterness to grow in our hearts, and and you know what, you not only may, you are beyond justified for being hurt. For being upset even. But when bitterness starts to get in there, it begins to take over. Excuse me, sorry. I hope you're awake now. I've spent the majority of the time this morning on the barriers to love. When truly it, it may seem that it would be more beneficial to concentrate on a call to biblical love. But, but, but let's face it. Most of us know what biblical love is. We just spend so much time trying to justify. Why we don't love in that way. That I thought it would be helpful to think about it a little bit. Well we are called to love. How? First care more about others. Than you care about yourself. I mean that's the essence of love isn't it? When you care more about others than you do yourself. I'm not going to take the time to read Philippians 2, 1 to 8. But just 
in brief summary, the Apostle Paul is writing to a wonderful church, and he's, he's encouraging this congregation to get, in, get along with one another. But specifically, there are two individuals who are really struggling, and he's saying, I, look, I, it, it hurts the whole body when the two of you are upset. You guys, all of you, let others' interests be more important than your own interests. Consider others better than you do yourself. And have the mind of Christ in this matter. What's the mind of Christ? Well, don't you remember he was in heaven? He had all the glories of heaven and he set aside the privileges of his deity. And though God, he became man and was ultimately rejected by man and crucified by religious and pagans alike. Why did he do that? Love. That's the kind of love that we're called to. Love always involves sacrifice. It may be easy to love members of your family. Well, okay, let's face it. It's not always easy to, to love members of your family, right? The odd thing is that when Jesus said, it's better to give than to receive. He's not just saying, look, this is for everyone else's benefit. Although it, it is. I mean, spiritual gifts are given not to magnify ourselves, but for the benefit of the body. Everything that we're to do is called to help other people. But as we give, we are blessed in ways that find no place in the heart of one who is simply trying to, to receive and to protect. When I'm to the place that I can no longer love others because I've been hurt too badly, I lose. And everyone around me loses as well. The worst thing that we can do is to isolate ourselves from others and to insulate ourselves from hurt. God's design is such that in loving and giving, we are blessed. That's why the second component of God's love, or God's call to love is so vital. Be quick to forgive. It is impossible to love without having a forgiving heart. But that is, no doubt, one of the most difficult, difficult calls on the life of a believer. Forgive those who wrong you. Look, okay, so your child or your spouse or someone says, oh, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. That, that, that's fairly easy, comparatively speaking. But someone who wrongs you and, and, and not only wrongs you, but justifies it and tells the world what an idiot you are. And are we called to forgive that person? Uh, yeah, we are. I mean, it doesn't look the same as it does when we're forgiving people who are very close to us. But we have to, we just have to be so careful. We say things like, well, I can forgive you, but I don't trust you. More often than not, it means I don't forgive you. Those words are true. It, it, it certainly can be true. I can forgive you, but our relationship is never going to be like it was. But I, I forgive you. That's possible, 
But it's very, very difficult. I mean, I think if we fully accepted Jesus' words, if you don't forgive men their sins against you, then my Father in heaven will not forgive your sins. If we really took that for what it says, we'd be a little quicker to forgive. That's one of our challenges as we're going through the Gospel of Mark, is to take Jesus at his word, not to just say, well, well, what he means here is, and, and of course, we understand everything that he says in the context of the gospel. But we need to take these words seriously. If you plan to read through the New Testament this year, I want to challenge you to be aware of how many times in the epistles we're told to love one another and to forgive one another. Peter says it like this, Above all, keep on loving one another. Earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Above all, that's the language of Scripture when it comes to love in the New Testament. So faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Jesus said that in loving God and loving man, all the law and all the prophets are fulfilled. It's interesting that Peter assumes the need for forgiveness. He assumes that we're going to do wrong by one another. But as we forgive, love covers a multitude of sins. So we're called to forgive unless, of course, we're too important to be required to forgive. Unless, of course, that the wrong done to us was greater than the wrong done to Jesus. Any, anyone? Anyone? That is not the case. And don't you think that since we're called to forgive and there's no way around it, to walk with Jesus, there's no way around it, we must forgive. Don't you think the sooner you do so, the better? But... I have earned the right to nurse my grievances a little bit. I'm going to be okay, but right now, just let me just, I just have to deal with this. I'm just not ready to forgive. But don't you know that when you do that, there's the possibility of this teeny little seed of bitterness is placed in your heart and it begins to take root. And it may well grow without your awareness and before you know it not only are you ruined but many around you are damaged as well how do i forgive when i've been hurt so badly last of all center on jesus the new testament tells us to follow jesus example but the emphasis is more about letting jesus live through us than it is about Living for him. It's a, it's a vine and branches kind of thing. First John 4.10 talks about the love of the Father. But the same, it's, it's all true. The love of God is this. And this is love. Not that we have loved God. But that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. It's not that, that, that you had this love for God. Love doesn't exist apart from God. 
If he's not loving through us, it's not happening. Love is not nearly as easy as it seems. I have a real temptation as we face this year to just be tired. Just tired. And I've logged a lot of miles and and years. The call on my life is to love. And it's not easy, but is it worth it? Even when it costs us so dearly? I mean, without love, we're nothing. And our lives will end in misery regardless of our possessions, our status, or even the love that others have for us. You may be loved deeply and dying inside because you're not loving others. So it's important that we get over our romantic notions about love righting all wrongs and bringing peace and feelings of well-being to all at this present moment. I want you to look just for a moment at this screen that Scott Shambly prepared for this series on Mark. Does that look romantic to you? If you had to describe this picture with one word, love would be a very, it it should be at the top of the list. So what does love look like? It's down in the dirt. It's dirty sometimes. It's gritty. It's dry. Above all, it's sacrificial. Above all, it's dying to self. If we are followers of Jesus, we're called to love. And remember, the way of the king is the way of the cross. To love is to die. And to die is to live. Let's prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, which reminds us of and binds us to the greatest expression of love ever given. Just before I pray, I I want to mention that the bread is gluten-free. I know that several of you have gluten allergies, and we have decided to go with a gluten-free bread so please feel free to participate. There are, I think, rice crackers. And um, we want everyone to be able to participate. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, um, we recognize that Any goodness in us comes from above. But because of life in Jesus and and Jesus in us, uh, 2014 has the potential to be a great year. It might not be great as measured 
by others who don't have the same priorities. But Lord, I, I would think all of us would want to say at the end of this year that, that you enabled us to love well. We pray that you would allow the love of Jesus to shine through us. And as we come to this table where we are bound to you and to one another, we pray that the love of Christ would flow freely through us. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Jesus said, no greater love has anyone than this. You can answer. You can finish that. And a man laid down his life for his friends. That's exactly what Jesus did. He died so that we might live. We want to live and so we fail oftentimes to die to our own desires, to die to the things that truly keep us from loving and, and in reality keep us from living. Some of you are in enormously difficult places and the call today to love in this year may almost sound like mocking in your heart. Let me encourage you to let this table change you. That's the design of the Lord's Supper. Not that this bread and this juice, this fruit of the vine become the body and blood of Christ. But we participate with the Lord in a very meaningful way. As you partake today, ask the Lord's heart of love and sacrifice and giving his life to nourish you so that you might also be willing to die to yourself and love as he has called us to love. If the workers and the musicians would come forward, please, to the front, we will prepare to serve and we will do as we have done the last many months. We will not always do this necessarily, but the workers and the musicians will be served first and then we'll ask people to come down these two slanted rows. Not the middle row, but the next two. Not the outside rows, but the two inside. Come down. Go to the station in front of you where you will be served and then go back on the outsides or down the middle. So don't go back up the aisle that you came down. But as you come, be aware of the body of Christ around you. If you claim Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then we invite you to participate. It's open to all. If you do not acknowledge Jesus as your Savior, you may come. Please come forward and don't partake or just stay right where you are either is fine and nobody's going to look at you in fact we'll be really will admire you for your honesty if you know jesus please participate with us
In the Gospel of Mark, as almost everything is, it's a very brief account of that night. Mark 14, and as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them saying, take, this is my body. And he took a cup when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Our father, as we come to this table. We acknowledge not only the death of Jesus Christ, but the sacrifice, the substitution that he became for our sins. We acknowledge that our only hope is in Jesus, not in our good works, not in the things that we have accomplished or our membership or our baptism. Our hope is in Jesus. And yes, if we are in Jesus, we'll be baptized, we'll be members, we'll do good works, but our hope is in Him. May we, this day, as we partake of the bread and the juice, be bound to Jesus and bound to one another. In His name. As we go out this week, let's think about the love that we talked about today, the love that Christ has for us, and the love that we should have for others. Now may the grace of Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit 